Exterior, Trailer Park, Day. 570 miles southeast of Kanab, along New Mexico Highway 70, is an incorporated community called Bent. A small trailer in the foothills of the mountain overlooks Bent, Highway 70, and the White Sands Valley below. Dave Skeleton lives there. His phone is ringing. We have a recording of the call because Dave Skeleton bugged his own phone. Give me a reason not to hang up this phone. Uh, is this Dave Skeleton? That depends on who you are. Oh, this is Griffin and Stewie. Howdy, Dave. Miss you, man. I don't have any meth for you right now. No, 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 no. We don't need any meth. I'd actually like some meth. We're working on a movie up in Utah, making bombs, and we're in a real fucking pickle. We can't make a big enough bomb to blow up what they want. What are you blowing up? The whole fucking state of Utah. The tumultuous shoot of Cyber Cowboys had somehow managed to reach filming the climax of the movie. $100 million over budget and half a year behind schedule, Denis Cantaire finally had to face the most difficult part of the shoot yet, one which, frankly, he had been scared to film. From Frank Castle's autobiography. When I got to that part of the script, I got so mad that I bit off part of my own tongue. Then I had a minor cardiac arrest, which I was able to think my way out of by calming down. Then I tried reading it again and got so mad that I crumpled the page up and threw it out the window. Then I remembered it was the only copy of the script in existence, and I had to go down 40 stories and spend the rest of the day walking around Century City looking for it. The part of the script that Frank is referring to is the film's climactic destruction of Infotrain. In the third act of Cyber Cowboys, Bookman and his crew escaped from their jail cells on Infotrain. Getting captured was their only way to make it onto the train, but this time, they're not here to rob it. They're there to destroy it. And Denis actually wanted to destroy his train. You know that thing he spent Honduras on? It was time to run it off the tracks. In the climactic battle, Rolando Netscape breaks into the train control room while Bookman fights off the Master Chief. Rolando drives the train off the tracks, which is something that this train can do, and steers it over the sand into the Grand Canyon. And in typical Denis fashion, he wanted to film this at the real Grand Canyon, all in one continuous take. When he told the actors this plan... Are you out of your fucking mind? How the hell are we going to get off the train? We're all going to die. Saturday's supposed to be on the train as it goes down. You're not okay with this, right, Saturday? You won't find Detective Columbo on that train. That would be murder. Well... Yes, I had not considered that until now. We'll think of something. I have a plan, my boy. 4th of June, 1940. Jacket Coldweather had an idea. Jerry had our boys surrounded on foreign shores, but we got our boats over there and evacuated them all in the nick of time. We'll done Kirk you off the train. Jacket's plan was to use whatever air vehicles they could get their hands on which included Jacket Spitfire, Billy Clientel's all-black Chinook that he flew in the Vietnam War, and Money McDonald's Heaven Copter. When the camera wasn't looking at a part of the train, the cast would have to run to the extraction point. This didn't solve the problem of how to get Saturday Lewis off, who was supposed to go down with the train. But an even bigger problem was about to emerge. 
The next morning, the crew was packed up and prepared to roll out to the Grand Canyon to shoot. The Kanab aliens were waiting right outside the camp ready to attack. But the crew never came out because of a phone call from Harge Gritchard. Hello? Ah! Ah, God damn it! I mean, uh, 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 hello, Hodge. Man, every time it is so scary. I know it's coming, and still. You can't film in the Grand Canyon. What in God's name made you think you could do that? What do you mean? It's a park. You can do anything in a public park. I went to a park, and there were three quinceaneras happening at once, and they all had fireworks. It's a national park. The point is you can't do stuff there. And certainly not a $400 million city on a train. What are we supposed to do? Film it on some soundstage like the Muppets? Yes. It's the only option. And do it cheap. This is the last straw. All of Hollywood is ready to come take your cameras back. This conversation is over. Fuck, he's gonna scream again. I love you very much. Huh? Uh, okay, yeah. Thanks. Ah! Fuck! Denis is devastated. He wanders around the set in a daze. The Grand Canyon is the only setting that will suffice for a scene of this magnitude. But then something caught his eye. He ran into Pearl Huet and Michael Chicklets, who were both digging into the dirt with shovels. What are you doing? Well, you didn't approve our budget request for a hot tub, so we're making our own hot tub. Eureka! No, I'm Michael. Who's Eka? Denise's plan was simple. If he couldn't use the original Grand Canyon, he would simply have to make a new one. He radios his demolitions experts, Stewie and Griffin, over immediately and tells them, I want you to blow a hole in the desert the size of the Grand Canyon. Uh, like the whole thing? The Grand Canyon. Uh, okay, we can do that. Shut up! You idiot. No, no, we can't. Look. I know it's our job, but we would need really big bombs for that. I'm talking like World War II bombs. Our crew makes like M80s. We don't know how to make those. Yeah, the people who made those bombs were like Nazi scientists. All right. Then find me a Nazi scientist. We don't know any Nazi scientists. Oh, wait. Yeah, we do. And that's where Dave Skeleton comes in. For most of his childhood, Dave Skeleton was a simple theater kid from Winnipeg, Manitoba, until he started listening to metal. His fascination began when, one night in 1980, he went to what he thought was a production of Jesus Christ Superstar, but was actually a Judas Priest concert. It was during their rendition of You Got Another Thing Coming that Dave made the conscious decision to become evil. He moved out of his parents' home and embraced a life of crime. He went on a year-long string of robberies that spanned nearly the entire Canadian Great Plains. One night, the spree came to a violent end. While robbing a liquor store in Saskatoon, he shot a man who he believed was just a guy in the store. But tragically, that man was actually two young children in a trench coat trying to buy beer. A double homicide gave Dave the all-time Canadian record for murder which garnered him quite a bit of national intrigue, leading to a wildly popular segment on him on the Canadian version of 60 Minutes, 85 Tubble Rams. Tubble Rams are minutes in the metric system. Yes, I found friends pretty much immediately in here. 
I found gentlemen who liked the same Swedish evil metal music as I did. So I was able to seamlessly fit in with their crew. I noticed you had a fresh tattoo there, bud. What is that exactly? This swastika. Got a bunch of those now. Dave's role within the Canadian prison Nazis was to make toilet liquor. When he tried to make liquor and ended up instead making nitroglycerin, he found he had a knack for making evil explosive concoctions. He was able to secure a job in the prison's kitchen and made an extremely explosive poutine gravy that he used to blow a gigantic hole in the wall and escape. Dave's skeleton quickly vanished, spending several years traveling across America making meth that occasionally exploded. During this time, his appearance changed tremendously. He dyed his red hair jet black and used Sammy Sosa chemicals to make his skin even more white. And he got a lot of tattoos. Calvin peeing on Mother Teresa, an elephant being hunted for sport, and a huge stomach tattoo in Times New Roman font that just said evil. He was able to make his swastika tattoo even more sinister by getting Charles Manson's face around it so that his swastika was Charles Manson's face swastika. He then finally made a home in a place that famously combined his two favorite things, evil and explosives. His trailer in Bent overlooked the Trinity site where the first atomic bomb was tested. And that's where he stayed for a decade until Griffin and Stewie called with the offer of a lifetime. With resources stretched thin and no one allowed to leave their posts on set, the only person available to pick Dave up was Money McDonald's. Well, Denis told me that I was the most useless person on set, which I found to be a little fresh. But he asked me and Superfudge to hop in the heaven copter and pick up this prison Nazi scientist. He told me I was going to the Trinity site. And I said, ooh, that sounds like a pretty lady. But Dave Skeleton wasn't pretty at all. He looked like that boy Edward Scissorhands. I mean, he really did. He had knives on his hands. Oh, yeah, we forgot to mention he started taping knives to his hands. Money, did he tell you anything about what he was planning? Oh, he talked my ear off. Not about his plan, but we took a tour of the Trinity site, and he told me about all kinds of things like the German V-2 rockets, the firebombing of Tokyo, and the Manhattan Project. I said me and Bobcat Goldthwaite had us a winter where every Friday night was a Manhattan Project, and every Saturday morning was a martini assignment. The Heavencopter flew to a designated secret meeting place for Denis and Dave, the old derelict set from the Neo-Phoenix scenes 20 minutes outside of Kanab. They met under cover of darkness. Denis, Pearl Huet, Michael Chicklets, some of the Rob Zombies, Zach Bogart, Dick Van Dyzyk, Griffin and Stewie. And for some reason, Money McDonald's. Denis laid out his plan for a weapons program that would have Dave creating increasingly powerful bombs that Stewie and Griffin would throw into the Grand Canyon Desert Hole. They would work around the clock, flinging in whatever explosives they could from Pop Rocks on up. In order to ensure total secrecy, Denis implemented a unique code that the select few involved would use to discuss the project moving forward. The Girls Gone Wild documentary crew captured this part of the meeting. Starting right now, I am instituting the opposite day protocol. We are not going to speak in only negatives and not mean the opposite of whatever we are saying. So, when I say, Dave, I do not want you to get working on this bomb right away, 
What I don't mean is that I do want you to start working on this bomb. This is definitely not to avoid saying anything legally incriminating. I don't understand. Yeah, me neither. I don't like that both of you do understand. No, we're really confused. We don't get it. Ah, not perfect. I don't trust you at all. Yeah, I mean, you shouldn't. Terrified of getting the opposite day protocol wrong, Pearl, Michael, and the rest of the Rob Zombies took a vow of silence. This made everything much more difficult. Back on set, Frank Castle was left in charge. He was very nervous about announcing to the cast and crew that there would be another indefinite pause in filming. So, to distract everyone, he decided to use the hiatus time to do a production of Grease, starring the entire cast. Summer loving had me a blast. Summer loving happened so fast. I met a girl crazy for me. Met a boy cute as can be. So obviously, Marlon Brando is John Travolta, and Saturday Lewis beat out all the women on set for the role of Sandy Olson. But Saturday was still an anti-method for his actual role in Cyber Cowboys, so he was acting as a completely different character that day. So what you're hearing is Saturday Lewis acting as Sandy Olson, acting as Jimmy Stewart. Apparently, the production turned out pretty good. The Salt Lake Times called it a refreshingly modern take on a well-tread classic. But not everybody loved it. The documentary crew that was following around Elena Rothschild was acting under strict orders from Hollywood and the Mossad to intervene if the set got too chaotic, and this certainly counted. And one night, they finally made their presence noted. What's up? It's your boy Gorilla Randy. It is 2.30 a.m. and there is nothing going on, so we're going on a walk. On nights like this, I like to take in the awe-inspiring silence of the desert night. Wait a second, what's going on in the shed where they keep all the cameras? Oh shit, it's the other documentary crew. We were supposed to follow you around, but we never did that. What are y'all up to? Uh, we are, uh, inspecting the cameras. Oh hey, Elena. Looks like you're putting the cameras into bags and then putting the bags into a van that doesn't have any license plate on it. Whoa, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are those guns for? Is that camera rolling? Camera's always rolling, babe. You never know when you're gonna run into a big-titted desert nymph. Whoa, whoa, what are you doing? You insulted my agent. You can't kill Gorilla Randy, man. I, I, I've been such a good guy. I, I've done so many good things in my life, like, uh, uh, yeah, never mind. The next day, Frank Castle awoke to find that the cameras were gone. Well, listeners, it's our favorite time of year again. It's the annual Closer Look Podcast Charity Ball. A night full of laughter, companionship, and song. She wore blue velvet. Look at all the beautiful people here tonight. Are you enjoying a shrimp cocktail, Margaret? Donald, I didn't recognize you without your sandwich. (laughs) Seats are going fast at the beautiful Venus de Milo Banquet Hall, where last year we were able to raise $15,000 for childhood leukemia research. This year the cause is a little more personal. 
You see, last year, me and Nate had an idea for a fog party. Now, you're probably imagining a fog machine in someone's living room. No, that's a party with a fog machine. We did a fog party. We handed out vapes, told everybody to dress in gray. And we bought 35 fog machines. Istanbul was Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Ladies and gentlemen, our waitresses, the Sugar Plums, are handing out an exclusive cocktail made just for tonight, the Canton Cloud. Look at all the fog in each glass. This drink comes straight from the Far East, and I'm not talking about Cape Cod. We sort of overdid the party. Apparently about 50 people showed up, but we never saw a soul. We couldn't see two inches in front of our faces. Every room was a wall of white. A lot of people fell. A lot of stuff fell on people. So this year's very worthy charity is us paying for the damages from our fog party, using a wonderful evening of entertainment. <laughs> Joshua the Falcon, everybody. <laughs> Wasn't that delightful? Roger, don't worry, we'll get you another plate of beef tartare. There was irreversible vapor damage done to our roommate Eli's room. Uh, his clothes were ruined, his bed frame rotted, his laptop blew up. So for a mere $1,500, you can sit at our table for a special VIP experience. You'll even get to spin the raffle ball machine thing for our prize giveaways. And the winner of prize box number three is... Seat 51, you've won. Better not be another fucking fog machine. Two fog machines. And at the end of the night, we'll auction off the once-in-a-lifetime chance to spend a night out in beautiful downtown Cincinnati with either of your favorite podcast hosts. And sold a night with Will Sennett for the beautiful Persian woman up front for $3,500. Last year, off the two dates alone, we were able to raise a combined total of... How much? Don't make me do this. No, no, I don't remember. How much? $3,545. A closer look charity ball, because for some reason, we won't do Patreon. Dave Skeleton was a Nazi, murderer, and methamphetamine maker. But above all else, he was a fan of the theater. And he kept an audio diary of his work on Cyber Cowboys, recounting the events in the most dramatic way possible. The ground will explode tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be... No, no, ah, no. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. Pop, squish, uh-oh, Cicero, lip shits. My desk is painted black. The windows are painted black. Even the beakers are black, 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 and black, and black. I don't even know what I'm making in the bowels of this lava that creates explosions most foul. I fear I may become Mr. Death. We didn't add that music. He put that in there himself. The theft of the cameras by the Mossad documentary crew made Denis and Frank incredibly desperate. But the documentary crew left their own camera and equipment, meaning Denis could still shoot. But now it was a race against time. Hollywood had been able to take some of their equipment back, but not all of it. And the footage that had been shot was still close to Denis. Very close. He started wearing important scenes around his chest like ammo belts. It was clear that if he didn't finish shooting in the next few days, he would never get to finish at all. So when Dave Skeleton came to Denis with an insane plan to finish the new Grand Canyon... Denis had to go along with it, no matter the cost. 
a meeting was held. We don't know what was said in this meeting because we don't have documentary footage anymore. But several members of the cast and crew left that meeting with items they needed to bring Dave Skeleton. Double, double, you're all in trouble. The bomb is full of napalm bubbles. But it's not enough. I must have more. So I'm sending the silent oafs out the door. They will bring me feet, bring me hands. They will bring whatever the cauldron demands. A dead man's skull, a cockatoo, the component parts of a B-52. A people magazine, a lump of coal. I fear my creation is beyond my control. It moans, it whimpers, it gurgles and cries. It won't be complete until somebody dies. I'm feeling like I might be Mr. Death. Here is what we know about the Dave Skeleton meeting. Each person drew a straw, and based on that straw, had to procure different things. Griffin and Stewie drew the first straw, and they had to get garlic. Very simple. Kevin Costner drew next, and he had to get windshield wiper fluid. Also simple. In fact, he went to the store with Griffin and Stewie, who then lost him. Panicked, they searched the store for two hours, until a call came in from a different store a mile away, where someone said that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, had been wandering the aisles. Pearl Huet had to get astronaut ice cream, which was easy enough to purchase, but every time Pearl got close to Dave's lab, Steven Seagal and Marlon Brando would attack her like the Viet Cong, hiding in bushes, setting snare traps, and one time leaping out of bamboo trap doors in the dirt. Michael Chicklets and the Rob Zombies had to get a five-inch worm, which Michael already had in his backpack for some reason. Money McDonald's also drew a straw. I got chips and a drop of salsa. I could have just gone to the store, but simplicity ain't always been my bag. Money took the heaven copter to Mexico to get his favorites. I got blue corn tortilla chips and two types of salsa. The salsa verde was part of the potion, and the roja was just yummy. Dick Van Dyzyk was one of the people that Dave Skeleton recruited. We don't know what he got. We had meant to chat with Dick about this over the phone, but we never heard from him that day. Until, at about 3 a.m. Uh, hello? Howdy, cowboys. Dick, are those police sirens? Is everything okay? No, in fact, I am being in jail right now. How was your night? Did you get up to anything fun? Wait, if, if you're in jail, is this your one phone call? Of course, didn't I say I love to talk to you? Always digging up the secrets. You guys are like Sherlock and his boyfriend. Dick, before your time runs out, uh, what did Dave Skeleton ask you to get him? I drew the longest straw, and the Bob Skull said, I am sorry, Dick, but you have to get me a live squid. I said, no problem, I go to my house, I already have a squid. You have a squid? Why? Have you ever been in the hot tub with the older woman and the squid? The three of you smoking cigars? Big night. Is why I'm in jail. You got arrested for... What? The squid smokes? Do, do squids have a mouth? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, oh I, they are tapping on the glass. I think that means I'm about to be fingered. Wait, 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 can we wire you money for bail? No, beautiful boys, I wired you money just now for the ladies and the vodka and the zip. Walter Matthau was the only person who didn't draw a straw. Mr. Skeleton took me aside and said, 
You have a special relationship with Bibby. Immediately, my heart sank, because even though I didn't know what Dave wanted with Bibby, I knew it was some kind of unholy horror, and I knew I was going to do it, because I always do my job. This is the most emotional passage in an otherwise pretty upbeat audiobook. Bibby Munculus didn't ask to be born. Well, not born, made in a lab. And he certainly didn't ask to hold up production the way he was. He just wanted to play chess and eat paper. He was a simple, not boy, but, you know, I guess monster would be the correct term. And I was his only friend. I kept looking for excuses not to do my task for Mr. Skeleton. I drove us to a park an hour away to play chess. I asked him questions about his life, like if he had any other friends. He said his best friend was a bar of soap. The scientists at the lab where he grew up would pour various liquids on him as tests, and he named the bar of soap he would use to scrub them off 67453. Then I asked him if he wanted some paper, and he said, Mwah! The only paper I had was the book I had been reading between takes of Mice and Men. He ate the whole book in one bite, and then he burped, and it sounded like a chainsaw starting. Eventually, Walter returned and handed Bibby over to Dave, who disappeared into his lab for a few days. Outside the lab, in the giant new Grand Canyon hole, something was found. We called Eusebio Crisco, who had been brought on late to help Stewie and Griffin explode the hole in a way that made it look more like the Grand Canyon. I was helping blow up the big hole with the gross explosives man, and we had trouble communicating. I would say blow that up and they wouldn't, and then I would say don't blow that up and they would. I mean, my English is excellent. Then they said, we are not using opposite day protocol. And I said, of course not. What even is that? And then they told me a bunch of things that it wasn't. So then I said very slowly, like I was talking the baby, blow up right here, only here, nowhere else. So they blew up the whole circle around it. And in one of those spots, they made a startling discovery. We found a UFO, like the flying dinner plate. He looked exactly like that. The gross man, Griffin, was wearing a t-shirt with on it an alien saying, take me to your dealer. And then, same UFO. Inside the UFO were bodies of the original human residents of Kanab. Eusebio found the real Bob Till Nag's sheriff badge. Within half an hour, the jig was finally up. News had reached every cast and crew member on Cyber Cowboys. They were surrounded by aliens. Pandemonium and fear spread through the camp, infecting everyone, except Denis, who surely saw this revelation that aliens were both real and wanted to kill him as just one more thing to worry about. Frank Castle, on the other hand, was the most scared guy ever. He snorted a shitload of cocaine and ran straight to Hollywood like Forrest Gump. And Frank was moving. The super-fast Kanab aliens could not keep up with him as he ran out of the camp. And Frank was a big boy. I mean, he was 5'11", pushing three bills. Denis, meanwhile, visited with Dave Skeleton, who was putting the finishing touches on his project. Dave recounted the ritual. Bring me the boy, bring me the boy. Like God unto Abraham, I say, bring me the boy. 
but not a mere human boy, you see. I need the creation known as Bibby. Bibby, don't scream. Bibby, don't cry. I'm going to sing you a lullaby. Rockabye, Bibby, my little flower petal. Your organs are made of a special metal. So into the green goo Bibby went, and Walter Matthau was there to attend, because the final ingredient needed for the bomb, sadness. Now I am become Mr. Death. Denis emerged from the lab happier than he had been during the whole production, and somehow wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Eyewitnesses claimed that he had grown three inches and his hairline rapidly unreceded. Denis grabbed a bullhorn and loudly proclaimed in his original southern accent that everything was fine. He said, all aboard the good vibes train, changes in latitudes, changes in attitudes. Then he went to his trailer and spent the rest of the night blasting Jimmy Buffett. Cut to Interior, Hollywood Hills Party, Night. Frank Castle sprints through the doorway into a super elite Hollywood party. From his autobiography, I ran into this party and Jimmy Buffett's there playing his music. Everyone is sitting around wearing lays and no shirts and they're smiling at me. I thought, what the fuck are you happy for? Y'all wanted to kill us three days ago. So I found Arch Richard and I told him about the Canab aliens. I said, you gotta call the fucking president or do something and do it fast. This isn't about movies anymore. Hard said, doesn't matter, I don't care, I'm eating a cheeseburger, lettuce and tomatoes, Heinz 57 and french fried potatoes, yes sir. Then he walked away. I wandered around the party for an hour looking for cocaine, and apparently this was the only Hollywood party that didn't have cocaine. So I walked into the kitchen and started eating coffee grounds when I bumped into Jimmy Buffett. And I asked him, why the fuck is everyone so happy? And he said, because the army just left, and they're going to take all the cyber cowboys stuff back by any means necessary. And then he put on a pirate hat and yelled, walked a plank, ran out and did a perfect dive off the diving board with like a backflip, like the Olympics. Hollywood decided to pull the plug. They dispatched a war party of 1,000 ex-military mercenaries with the mission to bring back all of the assets of cyber cowboys and kill any liabilities. They would be there in the morning. Cut to. Interior. Kanab Museum of Western Film History. Present. We spoke to Colt Winchester about the things we had just discovered. Colt, we're going to share some things with you about the people of Kanab that you might find perplexing. What, that they were aliens? Yeah, how, how did you know that? I've seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers, both versions, and the Abel Ferrara reboot. And also I saw them flying around in their spaceship a bunch of times. Why didn't you tell us, dude? We were having so much fun talking about movies, I didn't want to kill the momentum. But yeah, they came in a few years prior to the shooting of Cyber Cowboys and took over the town one person at a time. I wasn't from Kanab, and I kind of did my own thing, so they never got me. Not for lack of trying. I had something they wanted. My DVD collection. I have tunnels underneath the museum lined with DVDs. From what I understand, this material is their gold. And if I went to their home planet, I would easily be the richest man there. How did you survive for so long? Why didn't they just come into the museum? Well, 
I believe they followed vampire rules. What? Yep. They couldn't enter into a place unless they were invited in. And the original people never liked me much in the first place. So I never got invited out of my house. That's fine. I got thousands of friends in the movies. Do you remember that final night? March 16th, before the end? Yup. I was curious to keep tabs on the aliens and their movement, so I always listened to their radio broadcasts. And over time, I decoded their secret message that the lizard broadcast. Turned out that night, I didn't need it, because... Okay, okay, it's a lizard. Uh, no codes this time. Aliens, aliens, we gotta go kill these guys. They found our ship. Let's get our stuff back. Everybody, we're going to war. Leave at dawn. Cut to exterior, desert, midnight. Money McDonald's was going on a walk. Well, I do my best riding at night, away from the prying eyes of that dastardly sun. I take a tape recorder out into the field and hum my musings. What song were you writing? Well, first of all, I don't write the songs. The songs meet me at night out on the mesa. But I was writing a song called She's a Nuclear Reactor about how I make ladies react. Sexually. I was into nuclear stuff after Dave showed me the Trinity site, and I thought it would be funky to have a bass line that's a Geiger counter. Money McDonald's wanders through the field, holding a Geiger counter, humming along to its beat. We have that audio. In between her legs, she's got an isotope. Let me go a little lower and I'll mine her uranium. She's a nuclear reactor, huh? The Gaga counter was going crazy. Where were you? In front of Dave Skeleton's lab.